Good morning, everyone. My name is Joseph Dresden, and I'm at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Thank you for all for joining us for today's event, the Soviet, leaps, the Soviet Union leaps for the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's spaceflight. We are grateful to our co-sponsors for today's event, the Cold War International History Project, the History and Public Policy Program, and the Science and Technology Innovation Program. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to stay up to date with upcoming events and publications on our website, Facebook and Twitter accounts, as well as our podcast, KennanX and The Russia File. You can also find our latest analysis of events in the region on our Russia File and Focus Ukraine blogs and for our other program blogs at the Wilson Center. You will find the latest addition to the Sources and Methods blog, for example, by one of our panelists today, Asif Siddiqui. Dr. Siddiqui recently selected, curated, and annotated a collection of documents on Yuri Gagarin, whose spaceflight we are discussing today. We're also excited to have him in an episode of our upcoming Russia File podcast, which will debut later this month. We are so pleased to have our experts here to discuss uh, the ripple effects of the spaceflight in the Soviet Union and outside of it, which continue to this day. Yesterday was the actual anniversary of uh, Gagarin's flight, as well as the UN's International Day of Human Spaceflight. Uh, lastly, if this conversation inspires you to read and watch more about the cultural impact of Soviet space exploration, please check out our latest Kennan Recommends uh, on our website uh, on some great movie and novels on the topic. Before I introduce our first speaker, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to ask a question, you can submit it via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending questions. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker today, Dr. Slava Gurovich, and I'll be introducing each of our speakers right before their remarks. Slava Gurovich is a lecturer in history and mathematics in the mathematics department at MIT. He holds two PhDs from the Institute of History and of Natural Science and Technology in Moscow and from MIT's Science, Technology and Society program. He's written extensively on the history of Soviet mathematics, cybernetics, cosmonauts, and computing. He is the author of From Newspeak to Cyberspeak, A History of Soviet Cybernetics, Voices of the Soviet Space Program, Cosmonauts, Soldiers, and Engineers Who made the, Took the USSR into Space, and Soviet space mythologies, public images, private memories, and the making of a cultural identity. Slava, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Joe, for the introduction. Delighted to be here. So I'll uh, uh, dive right in. Let me share the screen. All right. Um, so, um, uh, today we'll talk about the legacy of uh, Gagarin's flight and uh, maybe uh, at first it would be uh, good to uh, recall uh, how that legacy was formed uh, in the first place. Um, uh, actually, the Soviet leaders, uh, Nikita Khrushchev in particular, started thinking about the legacy of Gagarin's flight even before the flight was completed. Uh, um, Khrushchev drafted uh, the procedure for celebrations after the flight, even before Gagarin went up to space. So um, there was a, an elaborate plan for these celebrations. And as usually was done, uh, was greeting um, dignitaries in Moscow. Uh, the people were assigned to stand along the route um, 
uh, of uh, Gagarin to greet him. And uh, this was indeed organized. People were um, asked to come out of the streets, but surprisingly to the Soviet leaders, much more people showed up than was expected. Uh, there was really a genuine outpouring of emotions, of enthusiasm, of joy, of uh, uh, Soviet people seeing one of their own up in the orbit. People would climb the roofs and watch from there. Uh, people would make uh, this kind of makeshift uh, uh, slogans, which were not kind of officially printed slogans, but something they would uh, invent themselves. And here we could see one of those uh, slogans, Cosmos Nash, uh, Cosmos is ours, which uh, ironically uh, echoed so ominously uh, recently in the slogan, the Crimea is ours, Krim Nash. Um, so uh, the idea of Soviet leaders was to fit uh, Gagarin and subsequent cosmonauts into the mold of ideological messages they uh, presented to the world. But you could see how Gagarin stylistically breaks out of that ideological mold uh, of Soviet leaders on top of the mausoleum. He, he looks very different from the, uh, from the Soviet top brass. And uh, um, he has a, a personal human appeal uh, to the people not based on, on the kind of ideological pattern. And Khrushchev realizes this uh, uh, genuine popularity of Soviet cosmonauts and begins to capitalize on it, to try to exploit the symbolic capital that uh, these uh, useful, uh, energetic, uh, charismatic cosmonauts carry with them. Uh, so um, he stages this uh, events uh, on top of mausoleum again, but now with the cosmonauts. And uh, uh, then these events are reproduced in endless uh, propaganda posters. A certain pattern is formed of how cosmonauts are presented to the world. Uh, the, uh, their uh, images are now reproduced even in sculptures. So uh, monuments to living cosmonauts are erected in Moscow in the so-called alley of cosmonauts. Uh, here you see a, a very uh, interesting image by a wonderful photographer, Dmitry Zverev, that shows how the humanity of the cosmonauts is reduced to just shadows on, on the monuments. Uh, then uh, monuments to Gagarin are erected all over the Soviet Union. Uh, here on the top right, you could see uh, the famous uh, monument in Moscow, where Gagarin is uh, kind of fused with his rocket. And on the top left, you could see that his, uh, mm, he almost loses his humanity. He, he uh, represents a, um, a unity with the machine. Um, cosmonauts, uh, uh, for the first few years, were the only one representing the Soviet space program because the leading uh, engineers who actually designed uh, uh, the rockets and spacecraft on which uh, cosmonauts flew were shrouded in secrecy. And Sergei Pavlovich Korolev, the chief designer of Soviet spacecraft uh, and rockets, uh, was just hidden under the nickname chief designer and uh, his identity was revealed only after his death in uh, January 1966. After that, of course, monuments to Korolev popped up all around the Soviet Union. Uh, but I should stress that these monuments 
were not only the ones ordered for, by the Soviet government. The Soviet government really wanted a very limited celebration of uh, Karlov's contribution to uh, the Soviet space program. But uh, many places where Karlov was born, lived, uh, studied, started erecting these monuments because they felt association with Karlov would uh, allow them to partake from the symbolic capital that he brought. So the Soviet discourse on, uh, on uh, the space program, the propaganda discourse was formed not just by the government, but also by these multiple agents, uh, local agents who felt that they could partake in it. Uh, the images that were presented, uh, as you could see, were slightly changed from the actual uh, photographs uh, here on the left, uh, Korolev uh, conversing with Gagarin. When this image is transformed into a monument, you see a subtle change. Uh, Korolev and Gagarin are no longer talking to each other. They're just staring into space, dreamlike, uh, mm, thinking sort of big thoughts. They're, they're not discussing uh, uh, small matters. They, they are now sending uh, ideological messages. Uh, such images, of course, uh, ignore or wiped out of history uh, the uh, uh, offensive uh, uh, elements of uh, history, uh, like the uh, imprisonment of uh, Korolev in, in the Gulag, as well as the imprisonment of uh, um, another chief designer, Valentin Glushko, who designed uh, engines for uh, Soviet uh, rockets. Um, that uh, imprisonment in the 1940s uh, was not revealed until uh, the perestroika period. Uh, images of cosmonauts presented to the world were also carefully selected. See, uh, here you could see uh, the uh, archival photo of the first group of Soviet cosmonauts with Korolev uh, in 1961. Uh, here is how this photo was printed in later in Soviet media. Uh, can you find difference? There is someone missing here. Uh, that person is uh, Grigory Nelubov, uh, one of the uh, cosmonauts in the first group, uh, actually very uh, well-prepared cosmonauts, one of the candidates for the first slot. He didn't make it to the first slot and uh, uh, then uh, took it to drink and uh, got into conflict with, uh, with the police and eventually was expelled from the cosmonaut corps. So uh, the image of cosmonauts as infallible uh, examples of the new Soviet man uh, who is not only uh, perfect in the physical sense, but also in the moral sense and gives example to all Soviet people in that sense, uh, that pattern didn't fit uh, Nelubov, so Nelubov was erased from history. Uh, another reason for uh, subtle adjustments of uh, the photos, uh, you could see here, here is the uh, archival photo at the launch of Gagarin, uh, Gagarin on the left, uh, Korolev on the right, and in the middle is Marshal Moskalenko, the commander of the strategic missile forces. The way this um, the photograph was printed, as you see, uh, Moskalenka has disappeared uh, because it was important for the Soviets to present uh, the space program as a civilian peaceful enterprise, 
and uh, the image of the commander of the strategic missile forces did not fit in there. So not only a, a drunken cosmonaut was removed, but also a marshal of uh, strategic missile forces was removed to, to fit in this ideological mode. Uh, again, not only the government uh, adjusted their uh, historical record for their ideological purposes, but there were other active agents writing their own space histories. Here you see three monuments erected for three uh, famous chief designers. Uh, in the middle, it's Korolev. In the top left, uh, Valentin Glushko, designer of space engines. In the top right, uh, Valentin Chelomey, uh, designers of rocket and spacecraft, who was actually a rival of Korolev. And uh, Korolev also had a fallout with Glushko. So the Soviet space program was filled with this clash of uh, personalities of chief designers and history was complicated. There were rival programs and uh, uh, each designer and, and people around them had their own story to tell and perhaps blame their rival for some of the uh, uh, falling behind of the Soviet space program and the lunar race, for example. So uh, these monuments represent these different versions of history written by these different parties, so to speak. And uh, the associates of these chief designers are almost literally standing guard to these monuments into the versions of history that they represent. Uh, so, um, uh, in order to, um, for cosmonauts to comply with that image of the new Soviet man to represent uh, Khrushchev's political agenda of uh, uh, adopting a new uh, communist, uh, new program of the Communist Party uh, just a few months after Gagarin's flight. Um, cosmonauts had to be uh, uh, perfect representations of the new Soviet man uh, who would be a member of that future communist society, the construction of which was promised in this new uh, program of the Communist Party. Uh, but it was kind of difficult for the cosmonauts to comply to this mold. Uh, they were genuinely popular. Um, Gagarin was with his charismatic smile, huge appeal, really warm and amiable personality, was universally liked, and uh, uh, it was difficult to resist temptations that come out, come with this popularity. Uh, he sometimes have come, succumbed to these temptations, and on one uh, womanizing accident had to jump out of a window and broke a facial bone. As you could see on the left, uh, he had a scar on his forehead. And uh, after that, uh, all his official photographs had to be repatched in order to remove this trace of uh, inappropriate behavior. Uh, and often, only after that removal, he could you know, continue serving as an example uh, of someone uh, of a new Soviet man uh, complying with the moral code of the builder of communism. Um, uh, German Titov, uh, the second uh, Soviet cosmonaut who flew just a few months after Gagarin uh, and uh, completed a, a, a much more complex, a, uh, a day-long uh, flight uh, uh, and actually uh, piloted his spacecraft, uh, was also a, became a celebrity instantly after his flight uh, and also had to bear this burden of fame, which uh, he did not uh, cope with very well. 
he had a, uh, uh, a number of uh, drunken driving incidents and after which he uh, was actually uh, reprimanded and uh, banned from holding public office. Uh, Soviet cosmonauts were routinely elected deputies of various Soviet uh, bodies. Uh, so he was banned from that. Um, as you can see here in his evaluation in 1989, he was called a, an object of national uh, space pride, Nacionalne uh, Kosmiczeskoye Gordest. And in the same evaluation, uh, it's noted that he had a, an instances of immoderation in, in drink, um, so uh, in order to control cosmonauts, to make them comply with the, uh, what was expected to them, they were sort of brought in line. Uh, they were forbidden to drink. They had to go to bed at 11 PM. They had to uh, um, get uh, authorization for any trip outside uh, Star City. Uh, their private lives were, were tightly controlled. Uh, here is a photo from the wedding of the cosmonauts Tereshkova and Nikolaev. Uh, they were asked to uh, hurry up with the date of their wedding because there was already a propaganda trip planned for both of them to go there as a husband and wife. Uh, so they actually spent their honeymoon on a propaganda trip. Uh, in those propaganda trips, uh, Soviet um, cosmonauts served as ambassadors of peace, representing uh, the Soviet Union, uh, showing, showcasing the achievements of uh, the Soviet system in science and technology, and generally sort of selling uh, the idea of communism around the world. Uh, that uh, was really something that cosmonauts uh, were not really prepared to do. They were not trained as lecturers, as propagandists, they were trained as military pilots. It was really difficult for them to uh, switch to a completely different uh, mode of operation, which actually interfered with uh, their uh, training as cosmonauts. Uh, they had to spend a lot of time uh, on these propaganda trips, uh, had to miss training sessions, had to miss studies at the engineering academy. So they uh, really, in order to be efficient uh, propagandists for communism as cosmonauts, they had to really stop being active cosmonauts. But they still continued doing this, uh, not only because they were forced to do it, but also because they saw it as an important uh, step in uh, uh, propaganda of the space enterprise itself. For them, it was important to stress uh, the, um, uh, to obtain support for space flight from the Soviet government. So they had their own agenda in raising visibility of space flight to obtain more support from the Soviet government for new missions, for training new cosmonauts. So again, this legacy and the way it was presented was formed by multiple agents, not only Soviet government, but also uh, space engineers, rocket engineers, cosmonauts themselves, local authorities. Uh, and cosmonauts uh, in those trips uh, uh, gradually became, began uh, uh, kind of changing their, their persona and changing their thinking about uh, their role in the space program. Here is uh, 
uh, German Titov on the right talking to uh, uh, JFK, President Kennedy in the middle, and uh, astronaut John Glenn on, on the left. And uh, in his memoirs, Titov recalled that he, held, he felt a certain affinity with, with Glenn, affinity that crossed the ideological divide, affinity of two uh, uh, military pilots who uh, uh, were able to see the Earth from, from the orbit and, and realize certain commonality that went beyond these ideological divides. And uh, um, Gagarin himself also felt that he, his public image uh, that he had to present went against the grain of his uh, self-image as a military pilot, of his identity as someone who really wants to fly in space rather than go on political speech circuits. Uh, but he had to play this role, be some kind of a, a like a wax figure in the Madame Tussaud Museum, which really upset him very much. And uh, um, when his mother asked him to uh, give her a photograph of, of his son, he gave her not his uh, uh, this decorated photo on the left, but the photo taken in 1960, even before he made his pioneering flight. Uh, photo taken on occasion by uh, by a photographer um, whom I later interviewed. Uh, so this photo in which uh, Gagarin did not had not yet tasted his fame uh, is not yet spoiled by it, and this is the kind of photo he wanted his um, mother to see. Um, uh, just a couple of words uh, um, in conclusion, how this imagery is now represented in today's Russia. Here is a, a photo from the visit by President Putin in 2001, a visit to Star City exactly 20 years ago on the occasion of 40th anniversary of Gagarin's flight. And the way uh, cosmonauts greeted Putin there was uh, putting that uh, um, decorated portrait of Gagarin on the background. Uh, Putin brought a, a, a gift to the cosmonauts. And what kind of gift he, did he bring? It was another portrait of Gagarin. And uh, in exchange, cosmonauts gave a gift to Putin. And what kind of gift did they give? It was a watch with Gagarin's image on the face of the watch. So, uh, exchanging images, iconic images of Gagarin is the kind of language that power speaks to people and people speak to power. That's the only language they can manage in these circumstances. Um, Valentina Tereshkova uh, was probably second in popularity after Gagarin. And uh, again, uh, she was exploited as a symbol uh, uh, for ideological purposes by a succession of Soviet and Russian leaders. And it was not an accident that Tereshkova was asked in uh, being a deputy of the State Duma to introduce the amendment to the Russian constitution, resetting the presidential terms and allowing President Putin to run again. And uh, just yesterday when Putin lay flowers to Gagarin's monument in Engels at the site of uh, Gagarin's landing, uh, Tereshkova uh, accompanied him there, again, representing this uh, attempt on the part of the current Russian government 
to uh, partake in the symbolic capital of uh, uh, the Soviet space trials. Uh, even the name of the Russian uh, COVID vaccine, Sputnik, evokes the name of the uh, Russian space satellite and uh, kind of conveys the message of high quality Russian uh, product uh, and uh, the claim of a Russian lead in uh, the vaccine race following the space race. Uh, but uh, these um, images in today's Russia may not carry the same appeal they used to carry back in the Soviet Union. Now they're often placed in a commercial advertising con context. And uh, mm, uh, this is, you know, an advertisement for a drink, uh, which says for real cosmonauts. But ironically, these uh, images are now uh, are used by the political opposition, uh, which um, portrays the riot police beating up protesters, nicknames them cosmonauts. And this cartoon said, uh, that shows the riot police beating up a, a genuine cosmonaut, saying, now we are real cosmonauts. So uh, I, I stop here, just showing the last image of myself during a recent flight on board Soyuz spacecraft. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. Next, we'll have Dr. Asif Siddiqui. Uh, Dr. Siddiqui is a professor of history at Fordham University and teaches and writes on the history of science and technology. He's the author of many books and articles on the history of the Soviet space program, including The Red Rocket's Glare, Space Flight and the Soviet Imagination, 1857-1957, and Challenge to Apollo, The Soviet Union and the Space Race, 1945-1974. to He served as the Charles Lindbergh Chair in Aerospace History at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in 2013-14 and also has held visiting positions at MIT, Caltech, and Harvard. And he'll be a visiting professor at Princeton University's Davis Center for Historical Studies from 2021 to 2022. Uh, Dr. Siddiqui, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Um, so um, let me just um, set my timer here. Um, okay. Okay, so um, first I'd like to thank um, the Cannon Institute for the invitation to share my thoughts. Um, and of course to Joe uh, and Matthew Rojanski and Victoria and to Slava and to Kathy too. Uh, in terms of my reflections on the anniversary of the Gagarin flight, I thought I would organize my comments on two very broad but simple ideas. One looking at the future and the other looking at the past. And what I wanna do is to think about the Gagarin moment itself and think about the long span of Soviet and Russian space programs and consider how both future thinking and looking back nostalgia have been deeply encoded into its culture. As uh, many have written and uh, underscored, the flight of Yuri Gagarin came at a time of great optimism for most Soviet people during the so-called Khrushchev thaw after the horrors of Stalinism. Um, and so, you know, Svetlana Boyum, the late Svetlana Boyum, in her meditation on the future of nostalgia, notes that the Khrushchev period was, quote, the most future oriented in Soviet history. That Khrushchev promised that the generation of the 60s would live in the era of communism and conquer the cosmos. As we were growing up, she writes, um, it seemed that we would travel to the moon and much sooner than we, we would go abroad. 
there was no time for nostalgia, end of quote. And so the rhetoric that surrounded and promoted Soviet space exploits in the 60s, I think undeniably communicated a fetish for the future as underscored in language that explicitly linked uh, socialism with the space program. Uh, the former socialism made the latter, the space program possible. While the latter, the space program made the former socialism much stronger. And both would take the Soviet Union into a glorious future. Yet I think even at this time, even at the time of um, the 60s, Soviet cosmic enthusiasm was already uh, had a kind of um, a, a small version of what I call looking at the past. This gaze backwards had an important function. It helped to create a kind of origins narrative for the Soviet space program, a prehistory or a childhood with appropriate father figures such as Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, the, uh, the, the founding theorist of uh, Soviet and Russian spaceflight who lived in Kaluga. Uh, and also it, this kind of early history had its own adolescent trauma, such as the revolution and World War II. It delivered a teleological story to the masses on the history of the Soviet space program, one that eliminated contingency um, from the story and gave Soviet cosmic enthusiasm a kind of forward motion geared towards a singular goal that conflated the socialist uh, uh, utopia of socialism with the utopia of space life. So the past was as important uh, as the future, uh, since the past gave the, the program form and narrative structure, but it also produced real dead heroes, such as Tsiolkovsky, and later, of course, Karolyev, Sergei Pavlovich Karolyev, who Slava mentioned, and Yuri Gagarin, whose lives could be molded into legacies uh, useful for thinking about the future. So I believe this bundling of the past and the future simultaneously, inescapably, and dramatically was seated in the Soviet space culture of during the era of, era of Gagarin when many citizens were bursting with optimism for, for the cosmos. But later in the 70s, when popular fascination with Soviet space achievements began to wane, these two threads of the past and future were, began to merge. And I think the, the began to imperceptibly, as the forward motion began to imperceptibly slow down, uh, the, the past kind of began to overshadow this uh, forward motion. Soviet space rhetoric no longer looked to the future as bright and inviting. Instead, instead, there was now a kind of what I consider a kind of a nostalgia for the future. And what I mean by that, there was a kind of a fetish for the achievements of the 60s that communicated uh, not excitement, but melancholia, that there was a, it's a nostalgia for a time when the future was possible. Um, and this nostalgia for the future has survived and I think even strengthened in the post-Soviet era. Uh, and now manifests in unexpected ways. So let's talk a little bit about the imagery of the futuristic thinking in the early days of the space program and how it emerged in the first place. Uh, Soviet cosmic enthusiasm uh, of that time period was seeped in futuristic discourse, um, you know, sort of appropriating in many ways the original Bolshevik revolution's uh, adoption of futuristic text and imagery uh, from 1917. And later by the Stalinist time, posters uh, and such, of course, had taken on a distinctive characteristic with obvious renderings of expectations of the future. Um, I'm reminded of uh, People's Commissariat of Enlightenment, Anatoly Lunacharsky's word, who said that uh, they should depict not the grim reality of industrialization, but rather the inner essence of life that you know, Soviet posters should depict something more. And uh, sociologist Victoria Bonnell describes this quality as, quote, the future in the guise of the present, end of quote. So Soviet space rhetoric from the 60s kind of built on the, these kinds of tropes um, of and kind this imagined future. 
but also added a strong dose of technological utopianism, the idea that technology was a panacea for all of social, uh, all of society's ills, really. And in the post-war years, and particularly beginning the 1950s and 60s, this resurgent technological utopianism was abetted by an explosion of popular science journals and just general fascination with wartime technologies such as atomic energy, the jet engine, radar, and of course, space. And in the Soviet context, this enthusiasm for technology grounded in the belief that modern science and technology had the power to fundamentally transform society for the better and eliminate all its imperfections had, had some roots in Marxist thought that actually predated the October Revolution. Um, and the link between technology and the state was of course strengthened by Bolshevik ideology, which stressed the idea of machines as a kind of key to modernity. So both these antecedent historical strands, uh, the kind of depictions of the socialist future and the utopian fascination with machines was very much appropriated by the Soviet space program when it arrived as a powerful force with the launch of Yuri Gagarin in 1961. And of course, given their heroic status in the Soviet imagination, cosmonauts were especially powerful in instruments of that image and building that image, coming to symbolize in their own bodies, new Soviet power and prestige as Slava has shown. Uh, things of course changed in the 1970s, Soviet cosmic enthusiasm began to fragment uh, uh, after a series of traumas that unraveled the hope of the early days. These losses first confused and then dampened and ultimately tore apart the optimism that had carried the program on a wave of national euphoria. First, of course, there was the passing, uh, the death of Sergei Pavlovich Karolyuk in 1966, unknown in life, but a hero in death as he was finally identified as the mysterious chief designer of the Soviet space program. But the biggest and most heart-wrenching trauma was the untimely death of 34-year-old Yuri Gagarin in 1968 in an airplane crash. His funeral attended by tens of thousands of Moscovites was a mirror image of the parades that greeted Gagarin after his flight in 61. Instead of mass jubilation, there was now the deepest sorrow. Gagarin's death and the consequent uncertainty over exactly how he had died unleashed slowly at first, but with ever more certainty in the coming years, a sense of lost chances and abandoned expectations among those who had earlier believed that anything was possible. And the cottage industry of rumors surrounding Gagarin's death ignited a spark of deep cynicism among uh, the population, many young people, regarding the official propaganda of the Soviet space program, and a, by proxy, a suspicion of the legitimacy of the par party's place in Soviet society. Um, and as the economy entered a period of great stagnation, the skepticism was linked to people's daily lives. Um, so the belief that the Soviet cosmic project was the vanguard force in global science and technology was given a further blow, of course, by the loss of the moon race, the, the ghostly visage of an American astronaut on the moon in 1969, a Soviet flag was nowhere in sight, was a shock to popular confidence in the program. And as the decade drew on, Brezhnev's stagnation set in and the Soviet populace's general lack of interest coincided with a broader disillusionment. And going back to Svetlana Boim, she recalls that, quote, um, that we were the generation that was supposed to live in the era of communism and, sorry, we were the generation that was supposed to live in the era of communism and travel to the moon. We did not fulfill our mission. Instead, we were forced to confront the ruins of utopia. The fairy tales of our childhood was deprived of a happy ending. End of quote. So on the one hand, the loss of cosmic enthusiasm was a response to the visible failures of the Soviet space program and the material disappointments of the socialist project. Uh, the era of jetpacks and interplanetary travel 
for all never came. Yet on a deeper level, the transition from an era of optimism into an era of cynicism and disappointment was occasioned by this kind of merger of the two very forces that characterized the early era, unbridled optimism for the future and the creation of a usable past for the Soviet space program. And by this, I mean that the loss of cosmic enthusiasm gave way to a kind of, as I noted, a nostalgia for the future, which encompassed both a backwards glance and a forward gaze. In a different context, anthropologist Jonathan Back has noted that modernist nostalgia is less uh, a longing for an irredeemable past than a longing for the fantasies and desires that were once possible in the past. And that is, I think, why Gagarin continues to fascinate us to this day. He represents something that was once possible but is in the past. Gagarin remains among a trinity of dead heroes, including, of course, Sielkovsky, who I mentioned, and Karelia. Uh, works on them have increased at a dramatic pace, many by contemporaries remembering them or by journalists recounting in ever greater detail their lives. The tone of these works is melancholy and full of pregnant hope, remembering a time when the Soviet space program dreamed of more than simply mundane and lengthy orbital trips to the International Space Station. Uh, historian Susan Stewart's comment made in a different context about everyday objects uh, that mediate our understanding of time and space is apropos here. She notes that nostalgia wears a distinctly utopian face, a face that turns toward a future past, a past which is only ideological reality. Nostalgia is hostile to history and its invisible origins, and yet longing for an impossibly pure context of lived experience at a place of origin. At its very level, um, she notes, Nostalgia is the desire for desire. This desire for desire, I think, is laid at the feet of dead heroes such as Sielkowski, Karolev, and most importantly, at the feet of Yuri Gagarin, whose life was cut short at the very moment when he was returning from a period of excess, um, drink and so forth that Slava mentioned, and government-imposed limbo. He had returned to a disciplined life of academic work and cosmonaut training and hoped to fly a second space mission, yet he didn't fly. Such unfulfilled expectations are at the heart of this nostalgia for the future. Having grown into the middle age in the 1980s, the Khrushchev generation felt a deep nostalgia for a time when the future was still ahead, while subsequent generations identified Soviet exploits of the 1980s with economic stagnation. For them, the past was as mysterious as the present was mundane. So in concluding, um, going through that sort of, uh, narrative of the past and the present and the future, I want to actually Shift, to, shift gears a little bit from this notion of nostalgia and back to the, that particular moment of hope, to the Gagarin moment in 1961. I don't think we as historians should shy away from the larger um, anthropological significance of Gagarin's achievement. By the time that the first humans landed on the surface of the moon in 1969, Gagarin's flight had been eclipsed in the popular conception of space exploration by the spectral and uh, wonderful images of two American men who left their footprints on the moon. The technology, the men, the pictures, and even the parade seemed so much more compelling to a new generation. In the, histori in the histori historiography of space exploration, Gagarin's space mission assumed more importance for how it affected the American decision to aim for the moon than for its own place in the history of human science and technology. But Gagarin's flight, both from a historical and a technological perspective, warrants and demands its own context, its own narrative. This is not only because it was achieved by a nation that was not expected to do so, devastated by war, 27 million dead and 1,700 cities destroyed, but simply and ultimately because it was, as others have pointed out, an event that, like the moon landing, transcended nations, cultures, languages, and continents, 
and for 108 minutes represented the planet Earth. To put it simply, for the first time since the origin of human life on this planet, one of us had managed to escape it. And so on the 60th anniversary amid all the geopolitical rhetoric, I hope that, I hope that we could still remember it in those terms. Thank you. Thank you, Asif. And before I introduce our last speaker, I'd like to invite all of our audience members again to send any questions you might have for today's speakers onto the Kennan at WilsonCenter.org, uh, tweet us at Kennan Institute, or write on our Facebook page. And we'll be collecting questions and I'll be uh, passing those along to our panel uh, towards the end of the program. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Kathleen Lewis. Uh, Kathleen Lewis is Curator of International Space Programs and Spacesuits at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum, specializing in Soviet and Russian history. Dr. Lewis has completed both bachelor's and master's programs in Russian and East European studies at Yale University and her PhD in history at George Washington University. Her current research project is a re-examination of cosmonaut culture in the last six decades. She also studies and curates the histories of astrobiology and Blacks in Aviation and Space Flight in the United States and abroad. She has written about artifacts in the Smithsonian's collection articles, comparing Soviet and American approaches to exhibiting and portraying spaceflight, and is planning to write a history of the development of spacesuit gloves. Uh, so Kathleen, the floor is now yours. Joe, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank the Kennan Institute. And it's always wonderful to see you both, Asif and Slava. Um, it seems we only get to see each other when we're on panels together, <laughs> especially in these times. Let me... It's wonderful when technology works the way you, you plan it, and it's so rare. 60 years ago, Yuri Gagarin became the first human to, to orbit the Earth. Gagarin's first flight is what the Greeks referred to as Kairos. It was the proper opportune, opportune moment for action. April 12th can be celebrated as both a Soviet and a global accomplishment. An historical perspective anchored in the Cold War sees Gagarin's flight as a monument to the space race competition. On the other hand, looking at the event from the perspective of centuries old folklore, and dreams of spaceflight turns it into a global celebration. What I'm arguing this morning is that filmmakers have taken the Kairos, that is Gagarin's moment of flight, and used it to create a new usable past for largely Soviet Russian audiences through which um, to better understand that moment. The usable past does not alter Gagarin's moment, but provides a re-examination of the context and the perspectives around him. Since the collapse of the USSR, there have been a series of six films that I'm going to talk about today that have focused exclusively on human spaceflight and its immediate metaphor. These films, the filmmakers, have echoed the literary satire, reinterpretation, and farce that Russian and Soviet authors have used for nearly two centuries. And the films that I'm referring to today are First on the Moon, Pierre Yanunia, by, uh, directed by Alexei Konchenko in 2005. Dreaming of Space, Cosmos Prejusia, directed by Alexei Uchito in 19, 2005 as well. 
Paper Soldier, Alexei Gilderman, director, 2008, Gagarin, First in Space, um, Pavel Pakomienko, director, 2013, Spacewalk, Vremya Pervik, Dmitry Kitsuyov, director, 2017, and Salyut 7 by Kling, Kling Shipenko, who is a director and produced it in 2017. Alexei Fedoshenko produced First on the Moon as a mockumentary, and there's a controversy over its reception, initial reception in the West over that. But this film fabricates the existence of a secret Chika film archive of the Stalin, Stalinist program to send humans in, to the moon in the 1930s. The documentary reports on the unsuccessful mission and search for the survivor, the cosmonaut, Ivan Sergeyevich Holomov and his journey from the crash, uh, crash site in Chile and ultimate return to the Soviet Union. Although this is fiction, the narrative rests on the known and familiar history of the Stalinist Falcons of the 1930s and also as well as the, the space program of the 1960s. Harlama, as the narrative goes, Harlamov started his career as an aviation pioneer and was the first among the first heroes of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, he joins the secret recruitment for the first cosmonaut. The chief designer makes the final selection of Arlama for the launch in 1938. After the launch, the ground control loses all contact with the spacecraft, which throws the entire program into turmoil. The chief designer dies by suicide. Mysterious men sedate and kidnap the remaining cosmonaut candidates and destroy all evidence of the mission or so they think, saving only model spacecraft and films that remain in the NKVD archives until researchers discover them. What could have been a complete cover-up of the program's existence was, however, imperfect. In March, March 1938, Chilean peasants had reported a fire in the sky. It was Halarmov's spacecraft that had landed in Chile. He survived his mission. The NKVD KBD had pursued um, him following always closely, but never successfully. It destroyed, it failed to destroy one piece of evidence of the ill-fated flights. Flight. In the closing scenes, the movie takes the viewer to the Natural History Museum in Chile that retains footage from Harlano's lunar mission and the hardware from his flight. First on the Moon focuses on the weak links between the hero cosmonaut and the Soviet state. It use, uses a tried and true effort to make sense of the Gagarin event. By placing it within the context of Stalinism, Podichenko has deployed the Stalinist culture of erasure against it. And this is the erasure that, that Slava mentioned earlier. All that effort would fail because the police state's reach always exceeds its grasp. Alexei Uchitl's film, Dreaming of Space, takes a nostalgic approach to the early Soviet space program and provides the background for the story about the illusion of nostalgic optimism. The film takes place at the time of the, between the time of the launch of Sputnik and Gagarin. The protagonist of the story was a hapless young man, Konyok, a na naive resident of a port city. He meets a former sailor, sailor and dock worker, German, 
and his his personality allures Cognac. German is worldly sophisticated and knows what he wants. To the young man's mind, German is an exotic and mysterious, possessing superior skills and knowledge about the world and space. He even begins to mimic German and goes so far as to join him in swimming in the harbor. Little does he knows that um, German's swimming activity is part of his plan to swim out to a foreign ship in order to defect. In dreaming of space, space is a metaphor for inexplicable hope, not inexplicable hope of nostalgia that um, Asif spoke about. While on a train, Cognac crosses paths with an equally unassuming young pilot, whom the hero and the audience recognize as Yuri Gagarin. When speaking to Gagarin on the train, Cognac asks if he is going to fly rockets. Gagarin responds by asking if he's referring to the predictions of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. Cognac responds, no, I'm referring to the predictions of German. Gagarin replies that he has not heard of that scientist, and Cognac replies he's not a scientist, but he has already flown into space. Alexei Gagarin's, um, the director's paper, film, Paper Soldier, makes a more intimate and introspective look at the Soviet space establishment in 1961. The movie is set in Baikonur launch facility near Turatam, Kazakhstan in early 1961, and is based loosely on events. The central character is Daniel Prokhorovsky, a medical officer who works for the Soviet cosmonauts' troop. 20 men recruited to fly in space during the late 50s and early 60s. In Central Asia, Pokrovsky finds himself haunted by an elderly local mer merchant who is hawking a garish portrait of Stalin framed by makeup lights, reminding the doctor and the audience of the dark origins of the space program. As a physician to these young cosmonaut candidates, Pokrovsky tries to be their friend. He finds the fact that these young men could have to sacrifice their lives for the country troubling. One of the corps, Valentin, closely resembling Gagarin, confides to Pokrovsky that they all know that the others refer to them as Likey, the plural of the first ill-fated space traveler. That fear is borne out when one of the cosmonaut con candidates dies in training. Pokrovsky fears, bears the full emotional burden of the cosmonaut's death and has a nervous and emotional breakdown. He recovers in time to prepare for the launch of the first man in space. The director, Gennerman, makes an explicit critique of the Soviet system. Pokrovsky is a tragic figure. The moral burden of his work takes its toll on his mental health. Gennerman uses the char character as a surrogate for all of those who participated in falsely building the credibility for the USSR while knowing that the cost could be. These are the people whom Slava Gerovich has written about in Soviet space mythologies. I'm going to combine discussion of the next two films into one because they're very similarly, um, similarly devoted um, to a simple point of view directly to the cosmonauts. The first one is um, Gagarin's First in Space. Um, these are first person accounts on human space flight in the 1960s and avoid the in-depth examination of the context of their events. 
Gagarin's for, uh, first in space has a running time of precisely 108 minutes, the duration of Gagarin's flight. It reinforces the image of a farm board making good. There's little narrative and it focuses on the flight with flashbacks to his childhood. It's a very simple story for a very simple man and stops with his flight, leaving the legend that was created around him without much examination. In contrast, Spacewalk, though it is a similar biopic in focusing on the experiences of Alexei Leonov, um, it, who performed the, performed the first Spacewalk, the movie fulfills the truism of pilot lore. The stories often get better as the pilot recounts them over the years. There's no critical examination of either men in this case. One of the greatest lost opportunities to enhance the impression of the Soviet human spaceflight program was the reanimation of the Soyuz space station, Soyuz 7 space station. In February 1985, the Soyuz station repeatedly failed to respond to its regular status checks um, and signals from Soviet flight control. They faced three options. One, they could allow the dead ship to continue tumbling until the station re-entered the Earth's orbit. Two, they could seek American assistance in either controlling the re-entry or revi reviving the station. Or three, they could send their best pilots in secret and engineers to dock with an unresponsive station with no attitude control and revive it. They chose the hardest, option number three. The story of the rescue of Sayyid 7 became the subject of a Russian-made American-style film by the same name. Klim Chepinko, an American-trained Russian director, recognized that these events of June 1985 composed a hidden kairos in the Soviet spaceflight history. He celebrated the mysticism and heroism of the cosmonauts while using farcical ridicule to humiliate the politicians and the bureaucrats who surrounded them. Now, this is a really quick flyover, as you can imagine, of their appreciation of what contemporary Russian film has to tell us about the event that took place 60 years ago. As we pass into the very, very long term, and it, it really bothers me to realize how long ago that was and still within my lifetime, um, when talking about these events of Kairos of the space program, we might well consider examining what film and the other creative arts have to say and how we interpret these events of the past to learn better what really happened 60 years ago and as we examine far off times. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. That was, that was a tremendous look back at how uh, culture is the lens that we ultimately view a lot of this history. Um, at this point, I'd like to open it up to the panel and see if anybody has any comments to add based on any of the other presentations. Uh, and then I'll have some questions and then we'll go to uh, questions from our audience today. So panelists, any, any comments, any reactions, any thoughts inspired by what we've heard today so far?
I, I have one comment for, for question for Slava, um, and it, it's on a personal scale. Um, have you found any of the photographs taken of Gagarin when he toured Cuba? Uh, yes, there are photographs from Cuba. I'll uh, I'll uh, try to dig it up and show it in in, in a couple of minutes. Oh, uh, there is a there is a famous photograph uh, when he is uh, depicted with uh, um, Nikolai Kamanin, uh, who was an Air Force official in charge of the uh, of training uh, cosmonauts. Uh, let's see, um, and uh, and it's a it's a nice photo as it shows uh, kind of Kamanin uh, um, watching Gagarin so that Gagarin wouldn't wouldn't do anything inappropriate, so really fulfilling his role. Um, just one second, uh, if I could uh, locate that uh, um, that. Uh, Photo. Come on in. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, I'll, I'll show it a bit later. Uh, but uh, there, there are definitely photos. Uh, all, all Soviet trips, all Soviet cosmos trips abroad were very detailed, the, uh, in great detail were documented, and uh, uh, those photos could be, could be found. Uh, it was actually curious, just, just, uh, by association, how these foreign trips were treated uh, by uh, people who organized, like Kamanin himself, uh, the supervisor of cosmonauts, uh, that uh, cosmonauts was sent to socialist countries, to third world, third world countries, to capitalist countries. Uh, and um, there was a certain hierarchy of uh, uh, the way the trips were presented. Uh, for example, uh, uh, when the cosmonauts went to a uh, to a socialist country, then uh, the level of enthusiasm should be appropriately higher, at least shown higher than uh, enthusiasm in the capitalist country. So when uh, one of the cosmonauts, I believe Leonov, on one of his trips, uh, said something like, and he went to a, to some capitalist country and uh, was had a very warm welcome there. And he said something like, oh, I, I'm greeted here even warmer than in a socialist country. And, and Kamanin reprimanded him for sort of uh, upsetting the hierarchy of, uh, you know, the, the, the degree of warmth of welcome had to correlate with the degree of political closeness to the Soviet Union. So uh, Cuban welcome had to be uh, pretty uh, warm on that scale. I actually have a question for um, Asi. Um, so if, uh, if we uh, talk about this era of optimism and era of uh, cynicism, succeeded by an era of cynicism in, in the Soviet Union, um, how do these kind of phases uh, align in, in other countries? Are some other countries still in the era of optimism or sort of, or they're entering uh, cynicism as well? Yeah, thank you. That's a really excellent question. <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, looking at the United States particularly, I think there's a, there are echoes of it, certainly the general trends after the moon landing, 
um, if you consider the 1960s a kind of uh, an era of forward motion and excitement and uh, uh, for Apollo and the moon landing with peaking out in 1969, then uh, as, as you know, a number of historians have written, the 1970s was kind of the hangover and the a little bit of disillusionment with space and people lost interest in it. I don't, I mean, this is rather a simplistic story and I'm not sure it follows exactly, but I think you can certainly sense some sort of uh, uh, fatigue, space fatigue in the 1970s uh, everywhere. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely in the US. I, I don't know how we would track it further down the road uh, because it, the story is very complicated to just uh, wrap everything around uh, excitement and fatigue. I'm sure there are other responses to space too, uh, but I think uh, uh, it, it is a kind of, uh, particularly with Apollo, there is a kind of nostalgia industry in this country for Apollo. Every anniversary has a new book on Apollo. Every three years, there's some new thing about Apollo. It works, it functions in a very similar way, I think, as Gagarin in the U US, uh, sorry, in, in former Russia, so former Soviet Union. So that's my sort of general observation, yeah. Thank you, though. Thanks, so if I may, I'll, I'll, I'll found that photograph I'm, and I'd like to show it now for just for a second. Sorry, I lost, uh, oh, okay, right, okay. Uh, so here, here is that photo uh, from Cuba uh, with uh, Gagarin and Nikolai Kamanin on the right, uh, that uh, supervisor of the cosmonaut group. So carefully watching Gagarin so that Gagarin wouldn't misbehave or say anything inappropriate. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. Um, I would like to remind our audience that if you have questions for our guests, you can submit them via email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please do include your name and affiliation when you send in your questions. Um, I, I have a question myself. Uh, going back to the sort of era of space fatigue and if you extended it to the nine, uh, 1980s, um, I do recall, because this is you know sort of the age where I grew up, where there was the, the Buran shuttle that was, that was constructed to sort of compete with the American shuttle. And, it wound up as an attraction at Gorky Park. And I was wondering if that plays into your story, uh, Asif, and, and if you have any other stories about Baran as, as <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting period, the 1980s and an understudied period, I think, for space historians, because we tend to direct most of our attention to the 60s. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the there's really a, two separate stories. One is the the actual program itself, this, the shuttle program in the Soviet Union, uh, which uh, looked obviously very similar to the NASA space shuttle in the 1980s. But there's also the afterlife of Buran, which is post-Soviet and where it ends up and what it represents. And those two stories are, are very divergent stories, I think. And so one is a firmly, I think, a Cold War story about uh, one-upmanship and military uh, competition and so on and so forth. But the afterlife of Buran, I think, is is an interesting story, and one can see in in the in the in the rusted wreckage of these uh, derelict Burans uh, that you see in former Russia or elsewhere in the world. They are they're always showing up in in countries abroad. That um, that the, the afterlife of the Soviet space program in these artifacts, and um, 
I think the there is a uh, again, I think Buran is a perfect example of what I call nostalgia for the future. Buran, these uh, uh, these uh, derelict artifacts represent a future that could have been, but never was. You know, Buran only flew once in 1988. So, and there are people in Russia who devote their entire lives to studying Buran and writing books about them. And even though it's, it, and I think uh, even though it really didn't achieve that much, but I think part of the motivation to do that is because it could have been something extraordinary. And that little, it could have been drives a lot of people to um, uh, <clears throat> write about these things when the current day Russian space program remains a pale shadow of its former self. So why, why study, why, follow the current day Russian program when you can study these arcane esoteric could have been projects, right? And uh, so that drives a lot of space enthusiasts, I think, to write books about the could have beens instead of the what is to extend the metaphor. Well, I think part of Barad's appeal is it just looks cooler than the NASA shuttle. <laughs> That's also true. It's, it's, a, it's a, just on an aesthetic level, it's an extremely cool looking machine. Yeah. And, and it is on its rise. It was the the one that you mentioned that was in Gorky Park was moved to the exhibition for economic achievements just outside of the Cosmos Pavilion in time for the rededication of the Cosmos Pavilion in Moscow, mm -hmm. which is now more of a STEM center for the study, encouraging young people to study space technology. But that was part of, um, that was reopened about three years ago, I believe it was. Um, okay. So it, it has been brought back and there's one that remains on display at the Baikonur Museum in Central Asia and one at the Speyer Museum in Germany. So it, it still remains its allure and it's on an upswing, I think, currently in, by someone's efforts. Once again, who is the audience and who is the driver? And will this be accepted by the public is the question. Well. Also, before we talk too much of the decline of the Russian space program, we, we need to bear in mind that uh, still they are the main driver of getting humans into space up to the International Space Station. So uh, that, that can't be left off the table. Um, has, has any private industry uh, along the lines of, of SpaceX or, or the other rocket companies has any of that emerged in Russia whatsoever, or is it still strictly the Russian uh, sp space agency that, that drives this, their, their space efforts? Um, yeah, Kathy, did you have Well, it's, in Russia, there are very awkward constraints that are legacies of the Soviet system, which have not been released there their engineers, technicians, or, or visionaries to do anything more um, beyond the government. And those are constraints that also impose economic constraints. Um, as you may well know, um, the Baikonur, the, the main hub of human spaceflight, the Cosmodrome, is located outside of Russia. Um, the Russians have to pay rent to the Kazakhs in order to maintain that facility, and they have for decades been planning for opening up their, their far eastern um, uh, Vostochny cosmodrome to human spaceflight. Um, but as they approach their deadlines, the expectations 
have become smaller and smaller. It has gone from you know, a multi-launch pad, three launch pad facility to operating a single launch pad for, for unaccrued spacecraft at this point. Um, and that is that that is a uh, unfortunate um, problem that the Russians have to face. They have a very big country. It's very hard to convince people that they want to move their their families across 11 time zones um, to to work. You know, it's bad enough. I, I, I have been on the flights between Moscow and Baikonur. Um, it is not your luxury service that you might think it is, it is, you know, it is a long flight and it is a hard flight. That, that is interesting. And that's, uh, probably a pretty cool experience. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, you can share. I, it's wonderful. I recommend that yeah. everyone try it at least one, but take good walking <laughs> shoes, um, sturdy clothes and mm -hmm. a good camera. All right. Not your cell phone. A real camera. We have about 20 minutes left in our, our session today, so I'm going to turn to some questions from the audience. Um, There's a question for Slava. Uh, you mentioned the importance of a moral, smart, and upright cosmonaut as the ideal image of a Soviet hero. Is there anything comparable today or any gold standard of morality in Russian social life today? So who are the Russian heroes or who's put up as a hero? Uh, or have uh, cosmonauts been totally displaced as the ideal national hero? Um, I think the, the this evocation of cosmonauts every time uh, Russians need a moral standard is is a testament to the lack of such universally uh, shared figures of admiration in today's Russia. Uh, today's Russia is a politically divided society, uh, is a society in which um, um, many um, public figures tainted themselves one way or another by uh, collaborating with the regime or in the eyes of the regime opposing the regime tainted that way. Uh, so it's a um, uh, cosmonaut Gagarin as a kind of non-political figure uh, is, is someone who is um, who looks acceptable to uh, the entire political range uh, of uh, Russian society today. So um, um, I think that explains a bit of that nostalgia felt for the space program uh, and for the personalities representing the space program because they are not involved in today's political clashes. And, and in this sense, they are uh, um, they're taken as uh, symbols of, uh, um, of, of a person whose morality is not affected by uh, the compromises people have to make. Very good. Um, so I have a question from uh, Mark Mulholland, a former US Air Force officer. And the question uh, is rather long, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to read it. 
Uh, my, his question concerns a conversation he had about 20 years ago with a senior engineer who had worked on the Soviet space program. Uh, he said that uh, Russians decided to add a pistol to the survival kit in the cosmonauts gear. Uh, Soviet officials were concerned about people seeing another pilot in an orange flight suit parachuting to Earth. They didn't want peasants to pitchfork the hero of the Soviet Union. Also, apparently, Tereshkova landed on dry land, but her actual seat landed in the swamp, and they made her uh, <coughs> roll in the mud before they would let reporters see her. Uh, then the other last detail was that the engineer said that not all of these were willing passengers, and some of them had to be pushed into their capsules. Are, are there any other similar stories, or, or do you wish to confirm or debunk any of these stories to the best of your knowledge? Well, the, the pistol is true. It does exist. Um, and it is on, there are examples of it on display. And it's not only a pistol, but it also has a hatchet on the, I don't know enough about guns, but on the, the butt end, the handle of the gun um, to describe it. Um, and it is not for use in space. You do not want to fire a gun while you were in, in a spacecraft, but it is part of the survival tool. And um, though um, uh, American astronauts did not have a pistol, they did have a survival knife on board as part of their survival kit. So it is not unreasonable or unprecedented to provide the cosmonauts with that survival equipment. Okay. Uh, any, anybody else hear about the story of uh, Tereshkova being told to roll around in some mud? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things about the Soviet space program was because it was so secret that it, it was really rich fodder to generate all manner of rumors and good stories too. And so one of the hazards of researching the Soviet space program and people come up to me all the time, you know, I heard that this, you know, some crazy story because uh, there's so much uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, ambiguity in, in terms of what happened that people don't really know if this happened and anything could be possible. Um, in terms of Tereshkova, from what I know, you know, I mean, she, uh, I don't, I've never heard this story that her, uh, her spacecraft landed in a swamp or anything like that. <laughs> but there were other problems on her flight for sure. And, and you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that the actual real things that did happen were just as uh, interesting uh, and more so interesting than the salacious rumors and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, I've never heard the story. And certainly I've never heard of a cosmonaut being pushed into a spacecraft to fly in space, you know. Um, they, that would be very strange, but you know, maybe Slava can add some uh, details to that, so. Well, I, I, I recall a story uh, from the landing uh, of uh, one of uh, Vladimir Shatalov's uh, flights, uh, whom we interviewed, cosmonaut whom we interviewed with Asif at Star City a few years ago. And uh, the story that Shatalov told us was that uh, um, when, uh, when they landed and uh, the, uh, they opened the hatch and started climbing out of spacecraft and the uh, filming crew uh, was very fortunate to get uh, there in time for the landing and they uh, aimed their cameras at them and as cosmonauts were climbing out, the crew, uh, the operator told him, wait, uh, get back into the, into the capsule because uh, there is something wrong with my camera. I just fix it. Then I'll, I'll signal you, then I'll climb out again. So they had to 
go back to their capsule and, and redo the climbing out and waving for the camera um, for, for posterity, for creating the legacy that we are now discussing. And, and another example that comes to mind, in particular about Tereshkova, is that uh, very often um, uh, memoirs of the uh, first cosmonauts were ghost-written. So usually uh, a, a journalist was assigned to talk to the cosmonaut, and then based on these conversations, the journalist would write a, a memoir. And the journalist was assigned to Tereshkova to write her memoir. And um, one way or another, the uh, manuscript that the journalist produced was very far from the actual events in, in, in Tereshkova's life, so that she even complained about it. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Kamanin, who supervised this uh, whole process, uh, told her, we don't have time to make changes right now. The uh, book has to come out to the first anniversary of, uh, of, uh, of your flight. So you, uh, so let, let's state it as is. So the, uh, the memoir came out and um, then was republished and uh, actually republished quite recently in the unchanged, in the unchanged form. So the, I guess the the ghost-written memoir became internalized by Tereshkova herself. Now she has all the opportunity to correct the record and write her own true memoir, but she doesn't do that uh, because that memoir became the legacy that's now universally accepted. And and I would add also with, um, you know, Alexei Leonov's case, who was the first spacewalker in 1965, um, uh, for decades, he had been telling this story that he had been, he had a lot of trouble getting back into his spaceship. He had ex exited the ship through an airlock and he floated around for about 10 minutes. And then his space uh, spacesuit ballooned and he had trouble climbing back into the airlock and he had to basically climb around. He climbed in the wrong way, so he had to somersault inside the airlock and climbed in. But it turns out that uh, just very recently, last year, that uh, the actual transcripts of his uh, interview right after the mission, the day he was sort of interviewed by the state commission. And he mentions that he actually got into the airlock in the right way. There was no somersaulting, there was no nothing, no struggle in the airlock, but he had created this fiction for 40 years, but there was no way to verify it. So, so much is based on hearsay that I think it's interesting that even to this day, we're still correcting these little details of what happened uh, through the release of documents. It actually remains to be seen whether he told the truth to the state commission then. Yeah, that's also very true, yeah. But there's other corroborating evidence. But yes, absolutely, yeah. That's great. So uh, our next question comes from Elie Ko from Emory University. This is a question for all the speakers. Um, Ellie mentions that she has conducted oral histories with Cosmos who flew on the Mir space station and found that these cosmonauts feel a particular nostalgia and affection towards their orbiting home. Um, and it seems to her that, uh, meaning Ellie, that the history of the Mir station might be interpreted as a symbol of the decline of the USSR in the late 1980s and the rocket beginning of the Russian Federation in the 1990s. Uh, how, how does the Mir space station fit into Soviet space nostalgia? Uh, does it evoke nostalgia or is it uh, more seen as a sort of a symbol of, of, of Soviet decline. 
Um, I think it's a it's a symbol of pride, if anything. Um, I don't think uh, if any, and also it's sort of its ending. I think was seen by many as premature because it was deorbited in two thousand one. But for the most part, my understanding and uh, is that it it was a a symbol of pride uh, for many uh, in the nineteen um, late eighties and nineteen nineties. Uh, but uh, when Russia was essentially, uh, so the Soviet Union and later Russia was essentially leading the edge, pushing the boundary of human spaceflight through these long duration missions uh, by itself. It wasn't, you know, so I think, uh, but perhaps Slava and Kathy might have a different take on it. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, some space engineers who recalled the very moment when the station was deorbited and they actually, uh, they, they, they listen to broadcast of, of that whole process and the, and, and the, the, their feeling was really the, the end of an era and, and, and they, some of them almost cried, you know, being sort of kind of a, a really man, but uh, um, they, um, for them, it was a huge loss uh, uh, due to you know financial restrictions and changing priority in the, in the program, but something that that they lived with for many years, they invested a lot of their effort and creativity and hopes into that station, and uh, uh, so for them that was perhaps something that paralleled the collapse of the Soviet Union in the sense that. Uh, uh, a, a, in the, the era came to an end and they uh, had to live in a, in a new world to which they were actually alien. So they, uh, they, they never, I think, in, in a sense, recovered from that, uh, from that loss. Uh, I, and I speak about the old Soviet generation of engineers. Well, it's, it's, uh, it was a product, you know, the combination of, of 30 years of, of of Soviet and Russian uh, dominance in human spaceflight or just presence and making that presence extended to almost near permanent extended. And it, they also had to recognize that that was really the end of a unanational, a, a single nation having a, a prolonged space station program. I mean, even when discussions today about the future of the International Space Station there is an acknowledgement on all sides that sp human spaceflight is tremendously expensive. And really the only way to do it is to have joint members operating a space station or continuing flights to the moon and further, if we learn enough to get there, um, it, it will not, that, that era of, of um, global dominance and a single nation operating their own own program it is gone. And of course, that's a sad time. And, it, and it, it's also a sad time in the United States and the acknowledgement that here to from there on, um, even with the shuttle, um, they would be operating with international par partners. It would no longer be a solely American program. Um. I just want to point out one thing, which uh, hearing all of you talk, that the time period between Gagarin in 1961 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was 30 years. So everything that happened, we think about the Soviet space program, but it's also been 30 years since 1991 now. 
1991 to 2021. So it's amazing to think that in the last 30 years, that Soviet, that time period was essentially the, the exact same time period of the entire Soviet space program. And if you think about what Russia has achieved in space in the last 30 years, it's really, it really does just on paper pale. And, uh, and so I think in terms of the, its predecessor, so I think Mir represents the last gasp of the Soviet space program as it sort of moved forward and then is eventually collapsed in 2001. So I think uh, Mir does in some sense represent that last bit, but now we're in a different phase where I, I'm not sure what's coming. So. Well, that actually leads me to, I think, well, maybe our, our final concluding question. What is going to be the next Gagarin? Who's it going to be? Space flight seems almost routine, uh, but is it going to take a flight to the moon? Be the figure was in the past. What's it going to take? I'm an historian. I don't have to predict the future. <laughs> you know, I my my uh, one of the I I wouldn't say it's my favorite thing, but it's the one thing that I always notice about these kinds of uh, conversations about space is that, or or in general, any kind of conversation about the future of space, people will always say, well oh, this is going to happen in the next five or 10 years. And it never does. Most of it never does. And the predictive ability of space, you know, in 1961, when Apollo happened, people were saying, oh, there's going to be hotels on the moon and stuff on Mars. It never happened in the 70s. It didn't happen in the 80s, 90s. And it said just, it just never happened. So I think every decade we think, oh, next decade is the that we're going to have bases on the moon and stuff will happen. So I'm very cynical about this. I'm not sure anything will happen in the near future. Uh, but in terms of the more specific question, the next Gagarin, um, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if that moment is reproducible, that kind of consensus global moment, but maybe it is in the future, maybe the first person to um, go to Mars. I don't know. It's possible but I, I feel like that cold war moment is just a once in a lifetime lightning in a bottle type thing Slava any last word before we close today well uh, yeah I, I agree with Asif that uh, the only human spaceflight missions that could excite people now would be a mission to Mars uh, but it's probably a long way away but I could imagine another event which I hope don't happen but uh, uh, that could attract universal attention if we have some kind of a malfunction of, uh, on the International Space Station, God forbid, uh, and, and then a rescue mission had to be sent. So that's a kind of a, an event in which it would be a, an international disaster that would require an international effort to, to, um, to save people, I think, Again, I hope that that never happens, but that's something that potentially when we realize that there is a danger for all of us, then uh, we can uh, we can all sympathize with it. And, and this could be something that could evoke universal sympathy. All right. Thank you, Slava. On that note, uh, we will conclude today's event. I, I want to thank each of our speakers today for such a fascinating and engaging conversation and to all of our audience members for joining us today. Uh, and apologies to those whose questions did not get asked. There were uh, a number of them, but uh, time, was, time was short. 
I want to thank all of our co-sponsors for today, the History Public Policy Program, the Cold War International History Project, and the Science and Technology Innovation Program. Uh, please stay tuned for future Kennan Institute events uh, and everybody enjoy the spring weather. Have a great day. <laughs>